Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thank you so much for coming. And of course, we realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you wherever you are, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world, really. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Now, would you open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44 and that's where we're going to be today, and as you know, we'll also put those verses up here for you in the video just to make it easier for you to follow along. You know, today I'd like to talk to you about turning around. You know, we all have things in our lives that we've done that we're ashamed of, things that are always in the back of our minds, things that we wished we could just erase from our memory, erase from our story, if you will, and when we confess our sins to the Lord, that's exactly what He does. In fact, the Tanakh says that He forgets to remember our sins anymore. It also says He takes our sins and removes them as far away from Him as east is from west. Now, that's a wonderful time when we have that freedom from guilt, that time of liberation from the heavy weight of sin, and all that condemnation and guilt. But... There's another miracle that follows that gift of confession and our sins and being forgiven. And that second miracle is when God turns our life around. He makes our hearts new. And then we no longer want to do the evil that we used to do. We no longer want to live that selfish life that we used to live with all our own wants and desires and not worried about other people, just selfish and everything's about me, me, me. Well, you don't like that kind of a life. The world tries to tell you that that's what it will make you happy, but you know that that's not true. There's so many people that win the lottery that I've read about that end up committing suicide and doing these horrible things in their own lives because they've worked all of their life to try to have all of this wealth and money. And then when they finally suddenly have it, they find out it's not making them happy like they thought it would. In fact, they've spent all their life looking for happiness in all the wrong places. I think that country western song, right? Looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, you're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. The only way you can be happy in life is to get back in touch with your creator, the maker who made you and designed you to be his child. Only then will you feel fulfilled and happy and content in life. That's when we allow God to turn our lives around, to turn those lives around and to make our hearts new to where we no longer want to do that evil. There's a time when God turns your heart around. He changes it from that worldly heart that you used to have to a godly heart, a heart that's after his own heart, a heart where you want to do the right thing. You don't feel like you have to do the right thing, it's that you want to do the right thing. Why? Because you've seen your Heavenly Father do the right thing. You see the kind of unconditional love He's given you, so you then endeavor to love others unconditionally. And these two things that we're seeing today, these two things, confession of our sins and turning around our lives, these work together. And until they're both started, you're not really living that new life that God's promised you. 
that life that He's freely given you to experience, that life that's going to be a life of peace and fulfillment and contentment. Well, that's the way it was in Genesis chapter 44, where we're reading today. So let's look together at it, beginning at verse 1. And it says in chapter 44, the book of Genesis, verse 1, says, And he commanded the steward of his house, Joseph commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the man's sack with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And then put my silver cup, he says, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest man and his grain money that sack that he had carried the grain in and where the, where the servant was going to put the money, also put my silver cup, Joseph says to his servant. And so he did, it says in verse 2, so he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Verse 3 then continues, As soon as the morning dawned, the man, men were sent away, and they and their donkeys, and they're all on their way back to their father Jacob, who is also called Israel, remember? And they're taking this food back so that he'll be okay. Now Joseph has seen the youngest man that he asked them to bring down. And verse 3, it says, As soon as dawn came in the morning, they were sent away, them and their donkeys. Verse 4, When they had gone out of the city and weren't very far away, Joseph said to his steward, Now get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, when you catch up to them, Say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and with indeed he practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Verse 6. So the servant overtook them, and he spoke to the men the same words. Verse 7. And they say to him, Why does the Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Uh, look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouths of our sacks. How then would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of our servants it is found, let him die, and we will also be the Lord's slaves, my Lord's slaves. And verse 10, he said, the man said, now also let it be, just according to your words. Just as you've said, that's how it's going to be. That's what he's saying. He with whom that cup that belonged to Joseph is found shall be my slave, but you shall be blameless. He's saying, like, I'm not going to take you as slaves, but the man who's guilty, the man who has that cup, he's going to be my slave. In verse 11, then he goes on, he says, Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, took it off the donkeys, put it on the ground, and opened up his sack to show this man that they didn't steal anything, that there wasn't anything in their luggage, in their sack. That it was only the grain, and the man, of course, had put the money in there, but there was going to be that cup that the man had placed in the sack of the youngest, in Benjamin's sack. Benjamin's sack, as you would say it in English. So verse 12, it says, So he searched. He began with the oldest, and he left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Remember, Benjamin, Benjamin, was the youngest. He was Joseph's brother, his younger brother, and the only two sons of, of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob. And so even though Jacob was also married to Leah and these other guys were the sons of, 
uh, Leah and, and her handmaid and Rachel's handmaid. It was Jacob that loved Rachel greater because that's the one he originally fell in love with. He was tricked into marrying Leah, but he did the honorable thing. He married her and raised up children to her as well. And he considered them all his children. He was a, a good father to them. And he was a good husband to both of them. But from the beginning, he had poured out his heart for Rachel and to win Rachel's heart. But along the way, coming back in their journeys, as she was giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel died. And so Joseph, Benjamin's older brother and son of Rachel, and Benjamin, the newborn child of Rachel, were very special in Jacob's eyes. Then it says in verse 13, Then the rest of the men tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about these verses that we just read, the first part of this chapter. You know, it's interesting here to see that each of these brothers knew what his other brothers were like. They knew that basically these guys, these guys, my brothers here, are honest men. They knew that none of them would steal something from someone else, especially from a man who had just shown them mercy like he did and let them go out of the land of Egypt, go back into Canaan to their father, Yaakov, Jacob. They had no problem telling the man that none of them would have done such a thing. None of the men would have stolen the goods, especially of a man who had been merciful to them and given them their money back with all this food and sent them on their way back to their families so that their families could live. None of them surely would have stolen this cup that belonged to that slave's lord or master, which we know is Joseph, but he was still hidden from their eyes. They didn't recognize him, but it was Joseph who was in charge of distributing the food in Egypt. It was Joseph who had given them a hard time earlier. Well, none of them would have stolen that cup. But yet, they also knew what they had done years earlier when they sold Joseph, their younger brother, into slavery, into Egypt, just to get rid of him. They were jealous of Joseph, remember, because their father had a special love for Joseph, just like we said earlier, because he was the son of Rachel. He was one of the two sons of Rachel. So they sold Joseph into a strange land to strangers. They were certainly not righteous when they did that, were they? But yet in these verses here, we see that they trust each other to do the right thing. Now, several years have passed. It's been about 13 years, it seems, that so far as we know in the scriptures that Joseph was sold into slavery at about the age of 17 years of age, and now it's about 13 to 15 years later. It's actually a time when the famine is, is coming about and everything, and in these verses here, we see that the brothers trust each other to do the right thing. They think they know each other. They know that none of my brothers are going to steal this. Other brothers here were there saying, no, my brothers are not going to steal this. None of our family is going to steal something like that, especially from someone like that who showed us mercy. And so they made a confident offer, a bold offer. They were so sure that none of them had stolen the ruler's cup. 
that they then said to the man, If that cup is found with any of us, then let that brother die. Mm. But what were they doing? They were trusting in their own righteousness. And you always lose, you always lose when you trust in your own righteousness. You know, it's better to humble yourself and admit your own failures, to admit your own shortcomings, and then God can have mercy on you and God can lift you up. But if you try to lift yourself up, then you have pride and God will take you down. Because the Bible says in the Tanakh, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The one who seeks mercy will be lifted up. Now in Genesis chapter 42, just a couple of weeks ago, verse 21 of Genesis 42, we saw that Joseph's brothers had finally confessed their sin of selling their brother into slavery. They had acknowledged, even among themselves, they were talking about it among themselves. Joseph, they didn't know that Joseph could understand and they thought he only spoke the language of Egypt, but he actually spoke their language, the Hebrew too, and he could understand what they were saying as they talked to each other. And they were saying how, oh, they, they confessed their sins of selling Joseph and we shouldn't have done that. We heard his cries that we, we acknowledge that we've done wrong and now God is paying us back. And they thought that's why they were having this hard time with this man in Egypt who was selling them food, you see. Well, that was true, right? God had placed Joseph there and God was now testing their hearts. Joseph wasn't trying to get even with them, but Joseph was trying to make it to where they could do the two things that they needed to do to be healed. They confess their sins, and then they turn around their lives. And we saw in chapter 42, verse 21, that they, as they were talking amongst themselves, that why all of this hardship and, and problems were coming upon them, they're trying to get food in Egypt. And they said, it's because we sold our brother Joseph into slavery. We shouldn't have done that. We heard his cries. We didn't pay any attention. They were only concerned, you see, with their own emotions, with their own agendas. When you let emotions and your own selfish agendas rule your life, it's not going to come to good it's going to come to evil. And by the way, the enemy of God, Satan, has only come to kill and to steal and to destroy. But the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. When their emotions ruled them and their agendas ruled them and they were jealous of Joseph, they sold their own brother as a slave into the hands of complete strangers not caring where he would go or not even worried about what would happen to him. And now years later, when they come to Egypt to get food, they found that the man who would sell them the food was against them. So in chapter 42, again, they recognized that the trouble that they were facing was because of the evil they had done to their brother Joseph all those years earlier. And they discussed it among themselves. They didn't know Joseph could hear them. They didn't know Joseph could understand them, but he could. And he saw that they were confessing their sins. That's the first step to healing. But now, there in chapter 42, they had only confessed their sins. They had not yet committed themselves to letting God change their lives, to turn them around, 
to teach them how to walk the other way instead of the worldly way, how to treat others like they would want to be treated, how to love others as they love themselves. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of our chapter today. And it's that turning around or what we call repenting. It's that turning around and walking the other way is what the rest of this chapter is all about. So let's continue in this chapter from verse 14. So verse 14 says, Now Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. After they saddled back on their donkeys, turned back around, okay, okay, here we go again. Got to go back in here. We don't know what God is doing to us, but God is, is making us pay for our sins. It looks like that's what they're saying. So Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house, and Joseph was still there. Remember, they hadn't left that long ago. And they fell down before Joseph on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you've done? He's still acting like a stranger. And he said, Why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? I've done good to you. Why would you do such a thing to me? And he said, You stole my cup, basically, is what he's saying. Then he continues in verse 15, Did you not know that a man such as I could certainly practice divination? Now, Joseph himself was a godly man. Joseph was a man of prayer. Joseph chose to communicate and pray to and seek the true and living God. Joseph was not one of these people in Egypt that tried to practice talking to spirits and everything. And usually that was done with a certain uh, cup or a silver cup or some vessel of something that they drank from or something. And they would seek these spirits and everything and try to get answers about spiritual things from these dark places, you see. Now, Joseph is pretending to be such a person. But in reality, he didn't do that. But yet he used that as a story. And it may be that his servant, remember the servants didn't eat with Joseph because he was a Hebrew. And it was an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with a Hebrew. So even though he's the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, Joseph ate alone. So when he drank, that was alone, you see. So the servant didn't know. The servant didn't know. He just thought, well, everybody who's a ruler in Egypt, everyone who's important is in Egypt, practices divination with their cup and everything. And surely Joseph must do that too. But the Bible doesn't say that he did. Joseph is simply saying, didn't did you think that such a man as I, such a position as this, could practice divination? Now, then look at what Judah says in verse 16. We're going to change now to what Judah is talking about. It says in verse 16, Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. In other words, Benjamin. Verse 17, but he said, Joseph said, Be it far from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, you go up in peace to your father. Now look at what Judah says in verse 16 again. He says, he says that God has found out the iniquity of the brothers, of all of them. He didn't just say, God's found out the iniquity of one of the brothers, the one who had the cup. He didn't say that. 
The reason why he didn't say that is because that's not what he's talking about. In his mind, he's thinking about when the brothers, all of them sold Joseph into slavery all those years earlier. He said, God has found out the iniquity of your servants, of my brothers. He didn't say just one of the brothers. He didn't say just the one who had the cup in his sack. No, he said that God had found out the iniquity of all of the brothers. So what was he talking about? It wasn't all of them that had the cup in their sack. It was all of them, however, who had sold their brother Joseph into slavery years earlier. That was all the brothers. Judah was saying, God's found out the iniquity of what we did years ago, selling our brother into slavery. He didn't know that Joseph knew what he was talking about. And now that event, when they had sold their own brother into slavery, was still haunting Judah. And no doubt it was also haunting the other brothers as well. But here's what I want you to notice. God is patiently applying pressure. He's patiently applying pressure to all the brothers, not to hurt them, but to get them to turn around and follow Him. To get them to repent. They've confessed their sins and that they did this wrong. They confess that God is punishing them for it. But they've done nothing so far to turn around and show God that they're willing to change their life because of what happened. God is patiently applying pressure to them, not to hurt them, but to get them all to turn and start following Him. To get them to repent. That's what it means, to turn around and go the other way. Not only to feel bad about what they've done, but also to desire to change the way that they live. To stop living just for themselves and start caring, legitimately, really, truly caring about other people. Then the, let's continue now at verse 18. It says that, uh, Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh Lord, please let my servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Now I want you to pay particular attention to what Judah is going to say here for these next several verses. Verse 18, then Judah came near to him and said, O Lord, please let my servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant. For you are even like Pharaoh. You're second in command. You're the most powerful man in Egypt right behind Pharaoh. You're just like Pharaoh. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servants, Judah says, have you have a father or a brother? Verse 20, and we said to my Lord, yes, we have a father. He's an old man and a child of his old age who is his young child. His brother is dead and he alone is left of my mother's children, of his mother's children. And his father loves him greatly, you see. Verse 21, then you said, he's speaking now to Joseph, but he thinks he's just the prime minister of Egypt. Then you said to your servants, bring that young man down to me that I may see him and that I, would, that I would know that you're not lying to me. That's what he had said earlier. Then verse 22, and when we, and we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would surely die. Verse 23, but you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face anymore. In other words, the next time you see me, if that young brother of yours is not with you, you all will die. 
That's what he's saying. You'll not see my face anymore unless that brother comes with you. You wouldn't even make it to see Joseph. He would have you killed. That's what he was trying to say, unless that young brother came with you. Verse 24, so it was when we went up to your servant, my father, Judah says, that we told him the words of my Lord. We told him what you said. In verse 25, and our father said, go back and buy us a little food. Verse 26, but we said, we cannot go down there if our youngest brother is not with us. Then we will not go down there because the man told us if we see his face again without our youngest brother, we'll die. We can't do that. And so verse 27 says, then, my, then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore two sons to me and that one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. He's talking about Joseph, remember? Verse 29, but if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, then you will bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. And then he says in verse 30 to this man, the prime minister, who's really Joseph, but he doesn't know it. Then he says in verse 30, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the young man is not with us, since my father's life is bound up in the young man's life, it will happen that when he sees that the young man is not with us, that he will die. My father will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant, he's speaking of Judah now, for I became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before you, before my father forever. Verse 33, now therefore, he says to the prime minister, Joseph, now, therefore, please let your servant remain. He's saying, please let me remain instead of my brother Benjamin. Let me stay here and be your slave instead of my brother Benjamin as a slave to you, my Lord. And let the lad go back up to, with his brothers. For how shall my father, how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Now this passage of verses in scripture is recognized as one of the most honest, one of the most heartfelt conversations that any man in the Bible, other than the Messiah, ever spoke. When Judah speaks these words, he's exposing his heart for everyone to see. He's not hiding anything. He has no hidden agenda. He's not hiding anything. He's speaking straight from his heart to this man. And Judah knows, he senses, he knows that God is right there watching him. He, know that, he knows that God is right there listening to him. Judah is completely coming clean. He's not holding anything back. He's telling it exactly like his heart feels. He's no longer speaking as a person only concerned with himself. No, he's speaking as a person deeply concerned about his aging father. What is Judah doing? Judah is standing in the gap. For not only his father's sake, but for the benefit of his young brother Benjamin, 
and the benefit of all of his brothers. They had said, we'll all be your slaves and the one who has the cup will die. But now Judah is saying, this young lad, his life is wrapped up with the life of my father and if I don't bring this young lad Benjamin back, my father's going to die and the rest of us, and the, and the man said, uh, well, don't worry, I'm not going to take all of you as slaves. You, uh, he said, the young man who had the cup will be my servant. And Judah saying, let me take his place. I will remain here forever to the end of my life and be your slave. Just please send the young man back to my father. He was concerned about the young man being free to go back to his father. He was concerned about Jacob, his father, living because the young man, Benjamin, came back to him safely. And he was concerned about all of his other brothers there who would have had to have been slaves and servants. But now Judah is taking their place and standing in the gap for all of them. What just happened? Judah let God turn his life around. He let God turn his heart around. And this kind of honesty, it's this kind of truthful, from the heart statement that God really respects. Yes, some people pray pretty words. Some people pray long prayers. But when God sees a truthful heart pouring itself out to him, he takes notice. He listens to that. Remember what he said to the woman at the well in John 4. He said, Woman, believe me that the hour is coming and now is when the Father will seek those who worship Him in spirit and in truth to be His worshipers. For such people the Lord seeks to worship Him. Those who worship in spirit and in truth, who speak the truth, who say what's on their heart who say it exactly as it is. They're not trying to be deceptive. They're not trying to hide anything. They're admitting shame when they have shame. They're admitting their need for Him because their sins have taken them and taken, him, uh, taken them away from Him. And they're admitting that they need His forgiveness. They need His touch. They're admitting that their so-called righteousness isn't enough at all because God is perfect. Almighty God is holy and no one can come into His holy kingdom with sin in their life. Sin has to be forgiven. But the sin can't just go away. It has to be atoned for. And that's why the Messiah is such the important person in the Bible. That God would become a man and give His life on the cross that our sins would be atoned for, a perfect blemish-free sacrifice. And He had foretold this in Pesach, in Passover, when He said, when I see the blood of the blemish-free lamb, I will pass over that house in judgment. That's the principle that we're talking about. God does not see your righteousness as good. He sees your righteousness as something you've tried to do, and you've failed at many, many, many times. And the times that you've failed at being righteous are far more than the times that you were righteous. And you know what? Even if you had done righteousness 99 times and you failed once, then guess what? You're still a sinner and you need forgiving. And you can't take that sin into the kingdom of heaven. And if you can't take that sin into the kingdom of heaven, then you can't live forever in heaven.
because no sin is allowed there. But if you believe on the one who took your place on the cross, if you believe on the one who atoned for your sins, and you confess him as Lord, as the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, then your sins will finally be forgiven. Past, present, and future. And think about it. You're alive today. Christ gave his life on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. All of your sins back then were still in the future. So all the sins that you commit in the future, even though you don't mean to, even those are forgiven. You are finally forgiven and free of condemnation and allowed to come into the kingdom of the holy and almighty God because your sins are forgiven. God is not like a man who looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Let God see your heart. Speak to God from the heart. Give Him everything. Don't hide anything. Don't hold it back because you want to have your own plans in life. No, you give it all to God. And only then will you find true happiness in life. Even today, even in your life, God is looking right now on your heart. What do you want to say to God? What will you pour out of your heart to God today? Why don't you give your life to the Lord today, right now? If you call out to Him, He's going to hear that cry, and He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness that you're in. He'll shine His light on your heart, and you'll be given a new life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all those past failures away, and you'll be made completely new, given a new start. And He'll give you everlasting life, like we were saying, in heaven. And that's guaranteed by God Himself. I'd like to give you an opportunity to believe on Jesus as the Messiah and Lord today. To receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Not to condemn you but to save you, to all who believe on Him. You can pray something like this. It doesn't have to be fancy, pretty words. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. Just something simple from the heart. Just repeat it after me if you'd like. and Just say, God, I do want to know You, and I do want to have real peace in life. I believe on Your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. And please forgive all my sins. I give my life to You, Lord. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I'll tell you something. God heard it. And He's already started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. You don't see it at first. It's working underneath the surface. Working and putting those roots down, soaking up the nutrients from the soil, the water that it's going to need to grow in. And after a while, you'll begin to see the wonderful changes that's happening breaks through that ground. You're going to begin to see the wonderful things that God is doing in your heart, in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Water that Word. Learn about Him and His Word. And talk to God every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.